everybody, and welcome back to this week's episode of the Crushing It in Construction podcast, Australia's number one podcast that is dedicated to the construction industry, where I interview amazing guests from within the industry that share their experiences, their wisdom, and their insights that'll help you, the listener, either grow within your career or grow within your business. So no matter where you are in the industry, there's always something valuable that you can learn from our guests and their stories. So this week, I'm chatting with Ben Collingwood from FSG Geotechnics. And in this episode, we talk about Ben's career, how he got started in the industry. And we also talk about how FSG has gone from a few key people in the beginning to having over 80 staff and being spread across three offices, which is really interesting. We also talk about culture and how FSG go about attracting and retaining A players to the company. So there's a lot to learn in this episode, a lot of valuable information that I think people will get a lot out of. So let's jump straight into the episode. G'day, Ben. Afternoon. Thanks very much for coming on the podcast. No worries, Jordan. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to having a chat with you. So for everybody that's listening to the podcast that doesn't yet know who you are and what it is that you do, could you just tell us who you are and what it is that you do? Yeah, sure. Well, my name's Ben Collingwood. I'm a geotechnical engineer, one of the founding owners and managing director of a company called FSG Geotechnics. We do a range of geotechnical consulting activities across all, pretty much all industries. So we have a particular specialty in foundation engineering, deep foundations and retention systems and so forth, but we do all types of geotechnical consulting. For a range of clients, lots of sort of major infrastructure project work, lots of resources industry, and, and now certainly getting more involved in renewables. We have 80 staff operating out of an office in Melbourne, Brisbane, and Perth, so that keeps me fairly busy. Tell us a little bit about you. How, where, where did you grow up, and what was kind of your first exposure into the construction industry? Well, I grew up predominantly in Melbourne with a brief stint in Brisbane. I can't say I took an interest in construction specifically too early. It was probably when I went to university and started to study civil engineering that I sort of saw construction as an area of interest and something that might suit my particular interests and skill set. So I started to look at that as a, an opportunity for a career and took an interest in geomechanics and geotechnical engineering, ground engineering, I guess, general terms, and it all went from there. So you didn't have any family or anything like that in the construction industry, any sort of early exposure at all? It was mainly when you got to uni and started exploring different topics. That's how you discovered where it was that you wanted to go. Yeah, yeah, that's very much the case. I think I progressively worked out that I liked dynamic, fast-moving industries, the challenges of problem-solving dealing with different challenges on a sort of day-to-day and lots of branches of engineering are, I guess, a bit more formulaic and tend to be more predictable. And I just found that that didn't get me motivated, but the sort of cut and thrust of construction and and all the challenges that go along with it did. So what about the geotechnic side of things? What was it that drew you to that specific part of engineering? Yeah, that's something I've asked myself actually in the past. And I I think, again, it's the unique challenges that it brings to engineering. I, I first got involved in construction a student engineering role for a tunnelling contractor, working down a tunnel being drilled by a TBM, tunnel boring machine, and found that fascinating, the fact that they never really knew exactly what was ahead of the TBM. They had to plan for all sorts of contingencies and deal with ground conditions as they arose, as much as they investigated what they were likely to find and they planned accordingly. There was always this, this uncertainty and this need to think ahead and plan and respond. And that sort of uncertainty, I guess, appealed to me. I think I like visualising things as well. So yep. there's a lot of potential for that in, in geomechanics because you take a small sample of the ground conditions, boreholes and other types of investigation that might be drilled. You need to fill in the gaps. I sort of enjoy trying to work out what's going on and what it means for whatever it is that you're trying to build. 
Yeah, I suppose that's a good thing. I mean, because turning into a business owner, you need to be comfortable with a certain amount of ambiguity. So I suppose that's a pretty good trait to have. Yeah, yeah. I look, I'm probably fortunate for this industry in that I probably work better under pressure than when I've okay. got too, too much time to think about things. So that sort of dynamic environment where each day throws up something different and you need to respond keeps me on my toes and seems to suit my personality, I guess. Yeah. So tell us, once you went through uni, you got your degree, how did you sort of hit the ground in the construction industry? Where did you land and what were you doing? Yeah, well, initially, as as I said, it was for a tunnelling contractor and that sort of sparked my interest. I worked out fairly quickly that they don't build multiple tunnels in the same city very often. You've got to move around a lot. You often don't have a lot of choice about where the next job is. So moved into geotechnical consulting from there and I did some postgraduate research at Monash University and from there went to work for a piling contractor and spent 11 years doing design and construction management for deep foundations and retaining walls, basements and all sorts of foundation engineering problems. So that was sort of where I really became entrenched in the industry, I guess, and and then the current business came after that. So what was it that broke the camel's back and made you decide that you wanted to start your own business? Were you not enjoying working for other people anymore? Was it something that you always wanted to do? How did it come about? I guess it was opportunity driven. I'd been where I was for quite a while and I did enjoy it. Great company to work for, great people and I really enjoyed the interaction with the guys on site actually. One of the things I I missed when I left working for a piling contractor was talking with the guys on site and those interactions. But I always felt in geotechnical engineering there was an opportunity, a business opportunity, possibly a little bit of a gap in the market for a consulting firm that focused on high quality engineering and gave practitioners that enjoyed the similar sorts of things to what I enjoyed, you know, a place to practice and do good work, which was very much technically focused and solve problems for clients and so forth. So that was attractive and an opportunity arose. My original business partner had a small consulting business that he operated himself with a bit of help from a few others. He wanted to expand that and I had the opportunity to get involved. So that's about 13 years ago now and that's where FSG started. Was that a bit of a scary time for you? Like how old would have you been when you made the transition from employee to potentially employer? I think I was 38 or 39. I wouldn't say scary. I felt like I had enough experience in the business world to make a go of it, but it was certainly a bit of a leap of faith. I needed to commit and that's the most disconcerting thing. You leave a salary position and you start an enterprise where you've got to bring the work to pay your own wages and, and those of others. And I think it just required a bit of commitment to the task and belief in what we're doing and the fact that there was a market need and could actually make it successful. So what are some of the different stages that the company's actually been through since you and your partner joined to get to where it is today with your 80 staff and your three branches and all that sort of stuff? Well, it's been some interesting times, that's for sure. Fairly humble beginnings. We had three people involved in the business, including myself at the start, and there was plenty of fairly solitary days sitting in an office, delivering projects, pricing new work, trying to win new clients and make it all happen. So look, it was very somewhat isolated, I guess, at times, but we were fortunate that we very quickly managed to get a few key people involved and that helped a great deal. I guess one of the key stages, we probably built up to about 10 staff and we were able to get a Brisbane office up and running when my colleague Jim Slater joined the business and he's got a long successful career in the a similar sort of area of engineering to me and quite like-minded. So that was a considerable milestone, great business head, great business development skills. So expanding into separate offices in different states, was that always part of the goal or was it just an opportunity that came up again at the time and you guys grabbed it or was it always part of the plan? 
Look, it was an opportunity. We've always taken the view that we'll only grow with the right people. Being able to get a senior person involved in the business that was a really, really good fit and had great business skills was just an opportunity that suited both parties. And more recently, we've done a similar thing with Perth with a former colleague who was looking for a career change and has recently opened our Perth office. So our growth has always been around people. We tend to see it as we don't have growth targets that require us to go out and just find people. We involve the right people at the right time, and that's what delivers the growth and development of the business. Yeah. So try and paint a bit of a picture for us. In those early days when you were getting it off the ground, how did you go about finding work? I mean, were there any points when you were trying to scramble and figure out what needed to be done that you thought, oh, shit, was this the right decision? Or what were some of the tough moments? It was probably around delivery rather than winning work, to be honest. We were fairly fortunate in that we had a lot of expertise in the marine sector, so things like driven piles for walls and jetties and retaining structures and so forth. And that was around the time, say 2010 to 2014, when the mining infrastructure boom was going on and the likes of Rio Tinto and BHP and others were spending a lot of money upgrading their facilities, particularly their marine facilities. So that was something that really suited us. And our problem really then was doing the work, not winning the work. So delivery was a challenge. I mean, to be honest, I probably the first three or four years of business, I, I probably worked most nights and, and most weekends to some degree just to get through the work. And that was probably the key challenge at that stage. So when you had basically more work than you knew what to do with at that point, I mean, it would have been easy to say, right, let's just keep hiring people and try and keep up with demand. Was there a conscious thought or was there a conscious decision to say, well, let's just not bite off more than we can chew. Let's just fill the pipeline and keep it at that. Is that how you sort of went about it or not? Look, we've, we've always tried to manage the workload to suit our resources. It's really difficult <laughs> and nothing that you ever get completely right and nothing that ever stays the same for any particular period of time. But I guess we tried to look at our resources and only take on as much work as we could handle with the people that we had. We certainly recruited and went out and tried to hire the people that we needed, but we were fairly selective about the right people involved rather than just getting the numbers up. So those two things are just a constant balancing act, I suppose, resource yeah. versus workload to this yeah. day. So you and I were having a chat, we were talking about attracting and retaining talent, and you said that's one of the areas that FSG has always been quite focused on. Was this always the case? Is it something you developed? Why did you choose to focus so heavily in these areas? You said it's something you do quite well. Well, it's certainly something that we put a lot of focus on and we see as a key to our business. We've certainly been successful in getting a large number of fantastic people, great practitioners involved in the business. And I think the key to that, to be honest, has not been setting growth targets. We would have happily stayed at five or six people if we couldn't find the right people to get involved in the business. It's only mm -hmm. because we've been able to attract good people that fit in and can do the sorts of things that we need them to do and enjoy being a part of it that we've grown as we have. And I guess the other key element to it is good people attract others. We've been fortunate to get quite a number of industry leaders in their particular fields. There's lots of different areas of practice of geotechnical engineering and obviously the younger staff want to work with those types of people to learn from them and be mentored and develop. So it comes from the top, I guess, and fortunately we've been able to attract enough really good people that it's brought others to us. Do you think that's the only contributing factor or is there other things that you've purposely done to help facilitate, bring more people in or do you think it's just simply around people that are good at what they do want to be around other people that are good at what they do? Well, I think another key to it is to have a business culture and working environment that allows people to do their job with minimum sort of interference from bureaucracy, I guess. We have always tried to make our business systems align with the engineering and the way we deliver our services. Obviously, we've got business systems, but we try to make sure that we don't put obstacles in people's way 
that they don't feel like they're wasting their time with unnecessary paperwork or meetings processes that don't add to the quality of what we do. So again, a, a balancing act because we need to have control over the business and what people are doing and make sure that the work's done and delivered to a high standard. So there's obvious need for systems, but we just try and focus on the engineering. And I think that creates hopefully a more enjoyable working environment than you find in some other places. And, yeah. and probably also a key is the sort of bit of a collegiate environment, team-based environment where everyone's here to help others. It's not about yourself, it's about the team and the team performance. I think that's a pretty important point because broadly speaking within construction, there always seems to be this kind of one-upmanship going on. And some of the best teams that I've had anything to do with, it's about achieving the end result is the goal. And that's what everybody's driving towards. And they seem to be the businesses that have the best culture when it's all about just everybody's working towards the same thing. It's not about you being better than me or me being better than you. I think that's a pretty important point that you just raised. Yeah, I agree. And I've said this to quite a few people recently, particularly because the industry's very busy. There's a lot of demand for skills and will continue to be a lot of work around it. When the industry's busy, it's a great time if you're in a good team with supportive people and people who can help you and support you and that kind of thing. But if you're in a, an under-resourced team or a team that doesn't have that sort of team-oriented approach, it can be a pretty difficult and stressful time. So you really want to think about where you want to be at times like this, I think. Yeah. And you raise a good point. The industry is really busy. And on the flip side of what you just said, because the industry is so busy, people are getting offered ridiculous amounts of money to jump ship and go to different places. What do you think the key is for you guys that's allowed you to hold on to some of your good stuff in a labor market that currently is like what it is? For us, it's very much about the long term. Our objective is to deliver good work and, and service clients' needs, but also develop great engineers. I mean, that's a, if I was to say I had a passion about the business, it's to give people an environment where they can develop into industry leaders in whatever their chosen area of focus is. So that's what we see as a key objective for the business, and that's what we try and do. It's obviously a mm. work in progress, and everyone's different, and it works better for some than for others, but we offer a career path an opportunity to learn from industry leaders that are already with the business and we try and give people the best opportunity we can. Do you have people that look like leave, figure out that the grass isn't greener and then come back? <laughs> yeah, we've, we've had one recently actually, a staff member who was with us very early and decided to try a few other things and fairly recently worked out that we were probably the place that suited him best. So that's great, reinforces what we're doing. Yeah. Everything's a work in progress. We're not perfect. We don't get everything right, but we do our best and so far yeah. it's worked reasonably well for us. I think that's a good sign because you don't begrudge anybody, nobody should begrudge anybody for wanting to change something or better themselves or go somewhere else. But I think the good sign is that if people are coming back, that's a sign that a company's got it pretty well right. I'm interested to hear like what you were saying before is that most of the people come to you because they want to be around other sort of A players. How do you go about initially attracting those people? Is it mainly word of mouth? Do you have strong referral systems in place? Like how is it? that you get the word out about the company to attract those A players in the first place? Well, I think it's been primarily personal relationships, whether it's myself or it's others within the business. I think people have seen what we do and how we go about it. And been a number of people who have thought about it for quite a while before they've eventually joined us, but it's been about illustrating a pathway. You know, the other thing I haven't mentioned is we are a privately owned business. We're an employee-owned business. So we started out with two shareholders and we now have around 20 shareholders, both major and small shareholders. So there's an opportunity to get involved in that way if people want to and contribute in the right ways. And I think that's a good way to reward people and make it worth it while as well, just to give them some 
some skin in the game and that's going to be an ongoing process for us. So what was it that made you decide to go down that path? Is it something that you've recently employed or has it been like that for a long time? We've always been staff-owned. We've diversified the shareholder base over the last four or five years. Look, we're a people-based business. Our product is the expertise of our people and it's not like we've got a factory making widgets and it's all about the capital and funding the inputs that we're selling people's expertise. So the way I see it is you've got to give those people an opportunity to share in the success of the business and it's not dissimilar to most other professional services firms that are privately owned where they keep people within the business to a greater or lesser extent in terms of how far that goes down the tree. But yeah, the, the people within the business own it and And I suppose that helps out with retention as well. If somebody's bought in hard enough to the company that they're willing to put skin in the game, then it says great things about the company that they've joined in the first place. Well, yeah, I think it asks questions of people about where their future is and if they feel that they're in the right place and and they've got a long-term future, then shareholding is a good option for them. gives us a way to try and reward people and and also to secure the future of business because we need to, over time, develop the next set of leaders and key shareholders who can take the company forward. When somebody comes on board that may have been an employee that then turns into a shareholder, do you see any noticeable difference in the way that they approach work? Do you see a sense of more pride in them? Like, is there anything noticeable that you see? Not really. I'd say that's because you sort of need to do all those things before you get the opportunity. It's not a matter of opening the door and putting your hand out. If they're able to contribute in the right way and contribute to our overall success, then the objective is to give them the opportunity to become a shareholder, but not before. Yeah, yeah. So back to the attraction and retention side of things, what are some of the mistakes you've made over the years trying to hone the attraction and retention side of things that people should look out for if they're trying to improve that area themselves? To me, I think it's all about firstly having a fairly clear, well-defined business culture and vision and set of objectives and then trying to find people that fit in with that. If you know what you're about and what you're trying to be and how we expect others to behave within the business, then it's easier to identify people who would fit in with that. And that sort of helps with recruiting. We always have a number of key people involved in hiring decisions and we don't have a lot of disagreements with people and and who's a good fit and who's not because I think we all share a pretty clear understanding of who we are and what we're trying to do. So in your opinion, if this is an area that somebody wants to start focusing more heavily on, because For a lot of companies, culture, if it hasn't really been thought of, kind of is a result of the company more so than something that's been actively cultivated. So if there's a business out there that's kind of hasn't given a lot of thought to their culture and all that, and they want to start improving that to help attract more people and retain some of the great people that they already have, where would you suggest that they start? What's step number one? And then what's step number two? Like where should they start to try and improve those things? That's a good question. I would say it really helps to sit down and go through a bit of a benchmarking process to identify sort of what you believe in, what your trademark is. There's external organisations that you can get involved to help you with that. We've used one of those in the past and it's been quite helpful, particularly to get the broader group engaged and, Mm -hmm. and to come to some sort of shared understanding. Some people are better at doing strategic thinking and cultural analysis of their business than, than others. On It's not necessarily something that I'm great at, but there's plenty of people out there choose the right ones who can help you with that. So that's sort of a first step. And I think you really need to try and live whatever sort of values and objectives you come up with. And that's probably the harder part. Once you sort of know who you think you are and what you want to be, you really got to live it. 
that's the only way to get people to believe in it. And I think it does snowball, you know, once you've got a sort of core of people who are aligned in the way they think and what they think the business is and how they're going to behave and yeah. all those kind of things. They become salespeople in the marketplace for your brand and can snowball from there, but it's certainly a bit of a process. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. So is there anything I haven't asked you that you think our audience might benefit from today? I guess one thing we focus on in our business or one sort of view we have is that just because others in the industry or the corporate world at large are doing a certain thing or doing things in a certain way doesn't mean it's the right thing for our business. We always cast a pretty critical eye over things that are going on in the industry and, and how other companies are doing their work and try and take the good bits that we think suit us and how we operate. And every company's different, so the sort of outcome will be different for everyone. But yeah, we very much try and pick the things that we think would work for us and reject the things that we don't think are right for us. And I think you can fall into the trap, particularly when you're growing a business from scratch of just looking at other companies in the same space or similar service streams or whatever it is, and think, well, this is the way they do things, so this is the way we should do it too. I think you just need to be a little bit more thoughtful about deciding what's right for you and what's not. Could you give us an example of what you mean by that? Was there a specific scenario that you'd share with us where you were looking at what other people were doing and decided, yep, no, that's not what we're going to do? One example for us is that we've always thought fairly carefully before we've put dedicated management and administration resources within the business. We, A lot of our management functions are carried out by the senior engineering staff and we, we have support staff around that, finance and operations and IT and safety and you know, all those sort of quality, all those sorts of areas. But I think it's very easy to think, you need a full-time safety person, you need a full-time quality person, HR and you know, all these different areas. I think it's a fairly inefficient way to do things. There's lots of external specialists that you can involve in your business to give you that expertise and to allow you to do things, do things well and within the regulations that you need to follow and so forth. But just putting on full-time people isn't always the right solution. I think that kind of draws back into your point before where just because it's been done one way for the last 35 years doesn't mean it's the way it needs to be done moving forward. And I think one thing that COVID's shown all businesses, if nothing else, is that especially when it comes to staffing and recruitment and all that sort of stuff, that there's a different way of going about it. So I think a lot more people are hiring remotely for specific roles, exactly like what you just said. You know, Can we get somebody to come in, do this and leave so we don't have to take on the bloat the organisational bloat of hiring these 10 people or whatever it may be. So, yeah, I think that's a pretty good example and a great point to, to take away. I always like to end these episodes on a bit of a, a lighter note because the construction industry, you know, sometimes it can get a bit in-depth. But what is there a weird or interesting fact about yourself that most people don't know? Oh, look, there's probably a, probably a number of things I could come up with. Um, one <laughs> one thing that's that I've found very interesting, I think I've bored everybody else with it recently, but I recently found out I've got quite a long family history in Northern England, on the English-Scottish border, there was Collingwood's running around there fighting in the border wars for many years, and there's quite good records of that. So I had a bit of fun digging those out. And, so you, and, you're um, big into the family history now, like the family tree? <laughs> well, that was, my, that was my COVID project. So okay. we had a lot of lockdowns in Melbourne, and that was one way I passed the time. Whereabouts in the north? My wife is from Northern England, so she's from Stockton-on-Tees, which is close to the Scottish border. But yeah, they're all pretty tough down that way. So we had a family estate back in the sort of 1500s, just north of Newcastle, between Newcastle and the border. 
and that was held for a couple hundred years and the family ended up siding with the Jacobites, the Scots, in one of the rebellions against the English crown and which was unsuccessful and the head of the family got hung, drawn and quartered and all the lands were oh, taken shit. away. So right that was the end of it. We've been coal miners and railway workers and things like that ever since. That's the closest you got to being blue bloods. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It's a running joke in our family because we had a similar thing. Like, so my family and all have ties to England and my uncle, who can be a bit of a snob, thought he'd found some sort of connection to us being blue bloods and my wife being a smart ass when they found out that it wasn't. She goes, yeah, didn't think you lot could be anything close to being blue bloods. <laughs> so probably the same with us, I think. Yeah, that's it. Well, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate you taking the time to have a chat with us and sharing your story and your journey and your insights of what it's been like growing the business. Where can people reach out to you, learn more about FSG and just generally get in touch if they want to connect for some reason? I'm always, always contactable. Our website's probably the best first point of contact, fsg-geotechnics.com.au, which has all our contact information. You'll find me on LinkedIn. Welcome yep. to contact me through LinkedIn and happy to chat to anyone who would like to. No worries. Well, we'll link to both the website and your LinkedIn profile in the show notes as well. So for everybody listening, if you want to find them, that's where they'll be. But other than that, thanks very much for your time, Ben. Have a good rest of your week and a good rest of your day. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the Crushing It in Construction podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player, and it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave us a five-star review. If you'd like to learn more about employer branding and recruitment marketing strategy, feel free to visit our website at moonshotmedia.com.au or reach out to me directly at jaskinner at moonshotmedia.com.au. Thanks again for listening and I'll speak to you in the next episode of Crushing It in Construction.